Welcome to Talking About Blood. I'm Helen Osborne, host of this podcast series and a member of the advisory board for The Blood Project. I also produce and host my own podcast series, Health Literacy Out Loud. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Melissa Alardo, who is adjunct faculty in the anthropology department at the University of Utah. She also works for Mays Therapeutics. As a researcher, Melissa identified a previously unknown adaptation in the Bajo sea nomads of Indonesia. This unique population has engaged in breath hold diving to survive off the sea for thousands of years. Melissa is now working to connect this adaptation to changes in red blood cell production and also investigating other diving populations. Welcome to Talking About Blood. Thank you. Hi. I am fascinated with your research. For certainly, you are the only person I've interviewed about breath hold diving populations. Please start off. How did you come up with this initial research question? So it was actually quite different from what I was meant to be working on um, during my PhD. I went to work in the lab of S.K. Willerslave, who is a renowned, um, he's very renowned in the field of ancient DNA. And I had a wonderful ancient DNA project. Um, but then I found out about another group of sea nomads called the Mokin in Thailand, um, and I just thought that they sounded extraordinary, both in terms of their breath-holding abilities, um, but also just their long history of engaging with the sea. Um, and I just thought, you know, as someone who's always been fascinated by evolution, I thought, now here's a human population that's just a perfect kind of testing ground for natural selection. Um, and that's because wow. breath-hold diving can be extremely dangerous. Wow. Can you just make it a little more vivid? I have this image of a movie or a play I've seen about breath hole diving, but what does that mean in real life? In real yeah. Life? So these populations, these sea nomad populations, traditionally spend their whole lives at sea. Um, so they're living in houseboats and they're getting everything they need from the water. And they're doing this largely through breath hole diving. Um, so, you know, one of my favorite um, kind of stories about these sea nomad populations is that often, traditionally, when they were spending all their time at sea on houseboats, the children would learn how to swim um, before they'd learn how to walk because there was oh, a lot more goodness. water in their lives than there was land. Wow. Okay. And then how long do they hold their breath compared to how long you or I might hold our breath underwater? So it really depends on what they're diving for. Um, they're diving really functionally. So if they are diving for something that is only found really deep, um, they're holding their breath for a lot longer. So maybe several minutes at a time. Um, otherwise, maybe they're diving more shallow for things like uh, mollusks that they can find in, in shallower depths. Mm -hmm. But what's really remarkable is that they're really not recovering for very long. So they're actually spending often more time underwater than above water. Um, because they just take a really short recovery, and then they're immediately diving again. That's absolutely fascinating. You spoke about your interest in evolution, too. Mm -hmm. um, what, what did your research find once you decided that this was the population you were going to be looking at? Just a quick take about what you learned about the, your initial question, I guess, has to do with evolution and the body. Uh, tell us more. 
Yeah, that's right. So, you know, as I said, I I thought maybe evolution was acting in this population. Um, But in order for evolution to act, um, it needs some kind of phenotype or physical characteristic to act on. Mm -hmm. Um, And so as I started looking into the the dive response, the human dive response, um, you know, there there are several components of that. There's a heart rate response. There's a um, a vasoconstrictive response, you know, where your blood vessels are changing to keep your blood closer to the center of your body. And then there's this splenic contraction. So your spleen actually contracts during a dive um, to give you access to these stored red blood cells. Um, and so I ended up choosing that as the phenotype that I wanted to study. Um, and when I when I looked in this population, I found that not only do they have larger spleens than nearby populations, but we're able to link that to a genetic change. Um, so it seems that they've actually evolved to have larger spleens, and that may in some way help them to increase their um, their time underwater. I continue being fascinated. I can't even come up with other words to describe this. <laughs> I, you have learned so much, and, you know, um, how did all this happen? So how did you go from your initial curiosity and support from your advisor to knowing so much about this? Was this just you all by yourself or how did you learn about this? Tell us the process. So I was really fortunate. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I started to come up with this question and was guided by my supervisor who I was really lucky Um, Even as I was interviewing for the position, he told me, if you have a really great research idea and you bring it to me and you can defend it, I will support it. And that's exactly what he did. Um, And he connected me as well with Rasmus Nielsen, who's um, an expert in this field and really just an outstanding and brilliant researcher. And Rasmus was the one who really encouraged me to narrow in on a particular phenotype. Mm -hmm. Um, And so through that process, I was looking into all of these different physiological components. I was speaking to a lot of physiologists. Um, I was trying to get connected to the populations themselves, which is a really challenging feat. Um, I reached out to basically any anthropologist I could find, um, including the person who eventually connected me to the population that I worked with. um, Well, connected me to the person who connected me (laughs) was um, a Dutch graduate student who had written a thesis um, on kind of the anthropology of this population. Um, so she, it was, wow. you know, I mean, I was reading just anything I could get my hands on and um, reaching out to, you know, I, there was a, a really fabulous anthropologist at, at the University of Copenhagen who I spoke with as well, who had worked extensively with this population um, in and around Singapore. And the first thing she said to me was, you need to learn Indonesian. <laughs> um, oh, and that's okay. because these populations tend to be largely marginalized. Um, they're they're sometimes referred to as sea gypsies um, and the the same kind of, right. I tend to avoid that um, name because gypsy carries the same kind of negative connotation in those populations as it does in like the Roma people in Europe, Mm -hmm. where you have a lot of people saying that they're thieves, they're, you know, they're they're criminal. There are a lot of, you know, there's a lot of negativity around um, what people believe about these populations. Mm-hmm. And so she was saying, you need to learn Indonesian so you can communicate with them directly and you're not depending on people who might have biases against them um, to translate what's going on. What I'm hearing from you is that 
multidisciplinary approach to this. So yes, you started with academics. I mean, that's what people do when they get their PhD. But you, sounds like it went beyond the science somehow. Uh, it also include anthropology, or maybe you started in anthropology and went to the physical medicine, but then you also went into language. You had to access this population. How how would someone be putting together a project that's this complicated and this diverse to find something that has lessons for us all? Yeah, I really think multidisciplinarity is the key to most research questions because most of the things that we're finding are not found in a vacuum. I mean, you need to understand the cultural context to try to put a date to, you know, how long have these people been diving um, you need to deeply understand the physiology to know, am I looking at the right organ? Um, am I measuring okay. it in the right way? You know, I spoke to um, clinical uh, ultrasound technicians to make mm. sure that I was measuring the spleen correctly. Um, you know, I, you obviously have to incorporate the genetics, um, but if you're finding a genetic signal, if I had just looked at the genetics of this population, I never would have known which gene to connect to the spleen um, because it was really kind of a an obscure connection um, mm -hmm. between this phosphodiesterase we ended up uh, identifying and the spleen, um, but it's one that has been really highly significant in terms of trying to understand this physiology. Um, so really, you know, and all the physiologists that I've worked with, um, you know, I've talked to clinicians about what the implications of this might be. You know, I've given a talk, I was once giving a talk to clinicians, mm -hmm. and someone mentioned to me that people who have had their spleen removed are much less likely to die, or much more likely, I should say, to die in traumatic car accidents um, because of that extra reservoir of red blood cells. Really? Um, so there's oh, just all kinds goodness. of information coming from all these different disciplines, and without them, it just seems impossible to me to, to paint a whole picture of such a complicated question. And I think really any question concerning the body, concerning evolution, concerning genetics, requires that multidisciplinarity. You, you use the word paint, and I like that because I think of paintings mm -hmm. that are so multifaceted and all those mm -hmm. colors. I'm also thinking of what the blood project is all about, and that is about bringing many factors in, including humanities, including audio like these podcasts, as well as the physiology and the science and the, the lab smears and the technology, bringing all that together to learn more about what makes us human and keeps us healthy or makes us sick. You've done that on this very distinct project. For listeners, we, listeners of the Blood Project come from all backgrounds and bodies of knowledge. We have uh, a lot of listeners who are practicing hematologists or clinicians who've been doing this for a long time, physicians who want to know more about blood and what it means in their practice. Uh, we also have those considering entering the health fields or those new to it, perhaps in medical school or early part of their training uh, as physicians or other clinicians. And we have people like me and many others who are just curious about all this. I welcome from all you've learned and all you've accomplished, what recommendations and thoughts do you have for each of these audiences based on your really interesting project about breath hole diving? Let's start with those who have, are seasoned professionals. 
What can they mm-hmm. take away and learn from your experience at any level? I mean, I think, um, you know, it, obviously it's slightly different uh, depending on the audience member, but I think my, my recommendation for everybody would be pretty much the same, which is just talk to each other, you know, um, okay. <laughs> talk to talk to people outside your discipline, attend talks that you wouldn't think you'd be able to understand, ask questions, be curious. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, look for answers in places maybe you wouldn't have thought of because we have so much to learn from each other. And I think, you know, one of the kind of the one of the things that happens in academia is that we specialize. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, you know, you have to get really good at your field. But what happens in that process is that we end up in in this silo where we're not even aware of what's happening in other fields. So there are papers that are being published by, you know, members of other fields that we're not even hearing about. Um, mm-hmm. And so we just need to, to open that communication and, you know, clinicians speaking to theoretical evolutionary biologists and things like that, because you never know where an insight's going to come from that's going to bridge those two disciplines and, and result in, you know, a, a leap in terms of our understanding of the body. Um, and so I think, yeah, like being curious, stepping outside your comfort zone in terms of learning something new, um, which obviously it sounds like your audience is really interested mm-hmm. in, which I think they is are. outstanding. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, picking up a book that's uh, from a different field and, and just not being afraid to, to not know the answers and to ask someone because chances are there's out there, there's someone out there who has the answer that you're looking for um, and, and who has curiosity about the things that you know. Um, so I really think if we just all communicate more and and more of this multidisciplinary interaction happens, um, it will be just really good for science and, and for clinical care. Oh, you stated it so well. I also just wonder when it, when we when I think of the audience for all the different parts of life and career that we are at, is it harder when someone's at the early stage of their career to ask questions and reach out and be curious while well, they're still learning the fundamentals? I mean, you were so supported in your research by your advisors and in doing just that. But someone, you know, let's say studying medicine, is that harder? Do you think that would be harder to do or you think that your lessons apply from the beginning I think they apply from the beginning, and I think part of the evidence for that is if you look at some of the, you know, Nobel laureates and like really outstanding scientists, a lot of times their innovation comes really early in their career. And I think part of the reason for that is that early in the in your career, it's easier to to not know um, and to admit that you don't know, okay. <laughs> and to uh, to be open to being wrong. I think that's the hardest thing, especially as we become experts in our field it's a lot harder to go ask a question that feels really naive. Um, Uh So I think it really can apply to anyone at any stage in their career. Um, And I think going into it with humility, um, being aware of what you don't know, but expressing your curiosity and your respect for whoever it is that you're, you're asking the question to. I I think, you know, all researchers appreciate that because we're all really excited about the things that we know Uh (laughs) and really excited to share them with others. Um, so if anything, I think it's harder for people later in their career sometimes to oh. ask questions because we don't want to feel stupid. <laughs> um, so I think, yeah, just kind of, uh, for anyone early in their career, I mean, I, like I, like you said, I was really well supported in mm-hmm. mine and, um, encouraged to ask these questions and to seek out the right people. Um, 
But I think even if you don't have that, I mean, finding a mentor for yourself, just reaching out to someone. And, and very often, I think people are willing to help support people because like me, they've been supported along the way in their career um, mm-hmm. and are really happy to extend uh, that same support to anyone else. I'm I'm thrilled when young researchers write to me with questions or um, ideas oh. or anything like that. Oh, wow. I'm also speaking as person who represents that audience of people who are curious. Um, mm-hmm. You give me inspiration, too. And I think that it's lessons that hopefully all of us uh, can apply in our lives to be open to innovation, to be open to being wrong, to be curious, mm-hmm. to ask questions and look out at that big, wide world, including in the ocean, to see how we can move ahead and find our place in this world. Melissa, I thank you so much for sharing your journey with us, your research journey, your knowledge journey, for sharing it with us and inspiring us all to go forth, be curious, learn, and teach others about what we learn. And that's all on top of all you've learned about blood and physiology and anthropology. Thank you so much for all you've done, all you shared, for the way you inspire each of us, no matter where we are in our career and our interests, for letting us know about the importance of being curious, and open to learning. Thank you so much for being a guest on Talking About Blood. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. As we just heard from Dr. Melissa Alardo, it's important to consider many facets of how we learn about people and health and blood. That includes certainly taking an interdisciplinary approach. To learn more about The Blood Project and explore its many resources for professionals, trainees, and patients, go to thebloodproject.com. I invite you also to listen to my other podcast series about health communication. To do that, go to healthliteracyoutloud.com. Please help spread the word about this podcast series and the Big Blood Project. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Helen Osborne.